0: Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been um, living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Ber Lahoi Ra'oi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Ascends the reading. God's holy word. Please pray with me. Oh God, this is your holy word. And we come to it and we ask that you would speak through it. Indeed, that the very words of Christ would come through it. We pray, Father, that you would cause your word to go forth and that it would not return empty and void, but it would accomplish all that you have set out for it to do. We pray for the hearer that you would open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears, that they may hear you speak. And we pray, Lord, for your speaker. We pray that you would give him boldness and for confidence to proclaim your gospel. In all this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever uh, seen a child who understands what Christmas Day is all about, and who understands what that particular whole day holds for them especially, you certainly understand the word impatience. I, I mean, uh, children, as Christmas approaches, they have a very clear sense that something good is in store for them, and they cannot wait to claim these good things for themselves. Uh, you know, they know that grandma and grandpa are coming, and they're going to show up with their big bag of goodies, uh, and they are going to be there any day. They know it's a day that uh, mom and dad are a little less concerned about how many cookies and candies they eat. It is a day children long and anticipate for, asking the question over and over again. Is it Christmas yet? Is it here yet? Are we there yet? Even a month before Christmas comes, this question is beginning to be asked by children all over the country. Because children are anticipating something good in store for them. They are anticipating something wonderful held out for them to take hold of, but they cannot have it just yet. They long for the promised day to come and to be fulfilled. Now what if I were to tell you two particular children as they await the appointed time of Christmas Day decide that they can't wait any longer so they are determined to force Christmas to come early. The question of whether it's even possible or not uh, to speed things up, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to them. It doesn't matter to them at all. All that matters to them is getting the good stuff now. And so they go around the house wrapping up uh, old toys for their siblings or rewrapping something their mom, uh, something their mom and they gave to mom and dad last year in order to force everyone's hand into giving out the loot early. But no matter what they do, no matter what ways they conceive of in their mind to jump start Christmas, the reality is, and I think that this is something even those children realize, the reality is that the counterfeit is no match for the real thing. It doesn't compare. It's an artificial day. It's an artificial Christmas, if you will. It will never be anything more than a cheapened version of the real thing. Beloved, this morning, in a real sense, that is what is before you. As Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for this promise from God to come, as they await these glorious promises of God to be made, or that He has made to be fulfilled, as they desire this good thing that is held out for them, there is a decision made between the two of them, in this chapter especially, basically saying, we can't wait any longer. We need to act now. We need to force God's hand to bring something about. And in all their might, with all their efforts, they seek to bring God's promise about, to bring Christmas early. But in the end, all they end up bringing about is turmoil for themselves and pain for themselves and for the whole people of God. This has ramifications because they were too impatient to wait for God's timing. Now, dear Christian, what is before you is simply put, this is a human attempt to solve a problem that only God himself can solve in his own time and in his own way. That is the problem of this text. But before we be, get too hard on Sarah and Abraham, you know, pointing the other thing, finger at them, surely you know, their sin is great here. We need to recognize, too, that this is our sin problem as well. We are those children who rush Christmas Day. We are Sarah and Abraham in this text. This is what we struggle with, especially as uh, Americans who have instant access to everything, who don't even understand the meaning of the words wait patiently. One writer says this about our text, and I found it very, uh, uh, very convicting, and yet it is a helpful way to orient us to how to look at this particular text and how it speaks to our own situations, whatever they may be. And he says, "An attitude of impatience and to, in, uh, excuse me, an attitude of impatience and distrust is intensely dangerous. You are eager to wait or eager to see certain events unfold and have grown weary of waiting on God to act. You are anxious to see the way ahead instead of waiting by faith. You want to see every obstacle removed immediately as you long for good things. Perhaps you long to be married or to have a child or to progress to a a more fulfilling level of your career. Perhaps the church you are a part of uh, is not where you desire it to be and you long for it to flourish. You seem stuck at a dead end with no apparent prospect of seeing your hopes and dreams and desires. Realize what should you do when the promises of God seem slow in being fulfilled? What do you do when the desires of your heart seem good and proper, yet they remain as unfulfilled as ever? And here's his pointed answer. You must continue to wait for God's timing. God is not slow but neither is he in a hurry. And with that as a way of orienting us to our text, let us indeed see how God responds to these impatient children as he deals with this flawed scheme of Sarah and Abraham, a flawed scheme. Our text opens up, and the first thing we see is the same old problem that has been nagging Abraham and Sarah again and again since we were first introduced to them in chapter 11. Again, this same problem has been hanging in the air since we first met him. It is still lingering. Though God has promised Abraham a land and a seed, he still does not see either with his own eyes. But what seems to trouble him the more of the two is that he is childless. And that is because Sarah is barren. She is She has borne him no children. There's nothing new here, particularly as you come to this text. As far as the problem goes, it is the same old situation, just a different day of the week. But to be more accurate, it's not just the same old problem on a different day of the week. We're seeing the same problem that the people of God have faced for a decade. Ten years, Abraham has waited for the promise of God and still no sign of the child promised. Though God has promised over and over again, though he has shown Abraham the dust of the earth and the stars of the sky and said, your children will be like these, they will be innumerable, they will be uncountable. Even though God covenanted with Abraham to his own harm that a child would be born to him, nothing has happened yet. And Sarah, recognizing the situation, she says to Abraham, look, I'm still as barren today as I was yesterday. And that's in the Lord's hands. You know, so be it. Therefore, go into my slave girl, Hagar, who came from Egypt. Take her as your wife. It may be that I will obtain children in this way. Literally, it reads, it may be that I will build a house from her. Now, clearly, Sarah is beginning to uh, take things into her own hands as she waits, as she is waiting longingly for this promise of God. Now her language is very troubling here. It is, I will build a house. Perhaps it is I who will build a house, not God. The only one who can build a house that will not fall. I will do this thing. And Sarah is determined to make something happen. She uh, wants to make things get rolling let's get the ball rolling rolling and she is working these things out with her own hand and this idea it seems perfectly reasonable to Abraham and briefly i just want to uh, point out why this is the case first of all you know the proposal sarah is making in the context of the ancient world it's a common one uh, it, today If a wife proves barren, there are options for us to have uh, children in other ways, like artificial insemination or adoption. But in the ancient world, it wasn't wasn't an option to do either of those things. It was built into many marriage contracts, actually, that if a wife proved infertile, her handmaiden would finish the job, so to speak, for her. She would stand in her place in order that she, the infertile wife, might have children. That's why Sarah says, in order that I might have children, through Hagar. And this won't be the last time that we see it in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 30, Rachel, who cannot conceive, gives Jacob her handmaiden as a wife so that Rachel may have a son. It seems to be the same thing going on in 1 Samuel 1 between Hannah and Penaniah because Hannah was barren. And so her husband takes a second wife in order to have children. In other words, Sarah is looking at the problem of no children. And she says, you know, God promised you would have children. He promised that you would be the father of nations. Maybe maybe God never meant it was to come from me. Maybe the child was never to come from my womb. After all, the promise is to Abraham. Abraham. And for you to have offspring, not me. And we hear Sarah speak, and surely there is some reasonableness to her proposal. And by the way, it always seems reasonable to take one of the devil's shortcuts. It seems perfectly reasonable for Jesus to eat bread in the wilderness when he grows hungry or to throw himself from the temple to show himself to be the son of God or to make all the kingdoms of the earth bow down before him. The problem is for both Sarah and Abraham is that they should know better. You know, for one thing, Genesis 2 tells us that when a husband and wife are married, they become one flesh. And Sarah and Abraham would know that. And Abraham and Sarah are so eager to see the promise fulfilled. Notice this, they are so eager for good things to be given, for good works to happen in his church with the people of God, to see God work in the lives of people. To see a good thing happen that they are willing to push forward on a technicality. Now, technically, God never said the promise would come through Ab- or Sarah. But it was always meant. It was always implied because they are one flesh. And this promise, just as it would come through Abraham, will indeed come through Sarah. But 10 years later, 10 years down the road, things are not looking so good. How can we be sure that God will fulfill his promises before we die? I mean, so Abraham begins to listen to what Sarah says, and he listens to her words, and he says, okay. Notice they come up with this scheme and God is never consulted. God has never prayed to or sought concerning this new idea. This is wholly and completely engineered by man. They are seeking to fulfill the promises of God. They are seeking a solution to the promise or to the problem without God's direction or consult. Something else I think that we could take a lesson from here notice that they do all of this and they are engineering the whole thing. This is their own work, their own hands that are bringing forth this whole idea. Notice Abraham's passiveness here. Abraham is just as much as fault for this whole situation as Sarah is in this plan. We like to blame Sarah because she concocted the whole idea. But the language here is that Sarah commands Abraham to do this thing. Now, she is clearly leading the marriage in this situation. It is Abraham's responsibility to say, no, that's not what God said to do. But instead, he submits to his wife, and that's when all the trouble begins. There are echoes here to Eden when Adam submits to Eve, and all kinds of marital issues flow from it. Even the language here of verse 4, you know, where Sarah takes and she gives Hagar to Abram is to... Recall to our minds the garden where Eve takes fruit and gives it to Adam to eat. Adam followed his wife instead of leading her. And there are intentional and clear parallels here where Abraham is submitting to Sarah just as Adam submitted to Eve. He's very passive here. Instead of leading and guiding, he's content to sit back and let his wife do all the work. It's very interesting contrast compared to the chapter in verse 14 where he rises and he goes forth and he leads a whole army before him. And now his wife takes the rain and he sits back and he says, okay, whatever you want, dear. The problem here though, notice, and I need to say this, it is not that Abraham listens to his wife. Women, you heard me say that right. The problem is not that he listens to his wife. Listening to your wife can be a very good idea, but the question is, who is leading? You know, who is guiding the marriage? Who is directing it all? And clearly, Sarah has taken the wheel, and Abraham is just coasting along. He is content to follow. He's taken uh, a more of a passive position, just as Adam in the garden. It leads to all kinds of trouble, and we see it immediately unfold. I mean, after Abraham and Hagar are wed, immediately in verse 4, Abraham takes Hagar, and Hagar conceives, and we see this trouble begin to start brewing. Hagar starts to look upon Sarah with contempt. She now despises the one who she is to build a house for. The text tells us, actually, the word is that Hagar curses Sarah with her eyes. She holds her in great contempt and disdain. You can't do this thing, but I can. And Sarah sees this and she cries out may the wrong done to be abraham be on you interesting language that she blames the head of the household immediately you abraham you cause all of this trouble may the lord judge between me and between you clearly there is a wrong and one of us is, is at fault but i believe i am the innocent party here And we are right back to the garden again watching the blame game between Sarah and Abraham for what has happened, as though she is completely innocent. And Abraham, again, he's passive here. He wants to wash his hands of the whole thing. He doesn't want to deal with the situation as the head of the household. He is to discipline Hagar. That is what the role of the head would be, to correct her, to guide her errors. Instead, he's content to wash his hands of it to let Sarah deal with it, who in turn responds too harshly and drives Hagar into the wilderness. This is a messy, messed up situation. This could be a Jerry Springer episode you know, if you want it to be. I mean, everything that could go wrong here goes wrong. Nothing really is going according to plan here. There is trouble and turmoil and heartache. All Because God's people were in a rush to see God's promises fulfilled. They wanted to see the church flourish and bloom. They wanted to see the multitude. They wanted to see children as numerous as the stars in the sky. And it brings all kinds of trouble on the house of faith. They want to see God's promise fulfilled. The problem is they are no longer waiting on God. They have taken it into their own hand. And that is where all the heartache lies. But Sarah and Abraham, they don't get the last word here. It's interesting. God speaks. He enters into the situation and he comes down to comfort the downtrodden. To comfort the downtrodden. In verse 7, it's a little interesting here. Who it is that God comes down to speak to in this whole situation that involves many people. He doesn't uh, appear to passive Abraham He doesn't come down to scheming Sarah, who have determined by their own hands that they would build a house without God's help. But in verse 7, the text tells us the angel of the Lord came down to speak to Hagar, who is running home. She's headed back to Egypt based on where this well is uh, uh, that uh, God meets her at, where it is located in the land of Shur. But God doesn't allow her to go home. He doesn't allow her to flee from the problem. He doesn't allow it to happen. Instead, he sends this messenger of God, one who represents God just as a diplomat, one, one who without whatever he speaks, it is as though the king himself from heaven is speaking and is standing here. And so he comes to Hagar as she rests near a spring of water. And he says, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where do you come from? Where do you go? Notice God doesn't address her as husband of Abraham. He doesn't appeal to her pride. He doesn't speak to her according to the title, but he speaks to her concerning her rightful place within the house. She is the servant of Sarah. And she answers and says, God, I'm running from my mistress. And he responds, Return to her. Again, not to Abraham. Your husband, but to your mistress, return to her and submit yourself to her. In other words, God is recognizing here that Hagar is raising herself up in pride. He convicts her of her sin. He calls her sin out on, calls her out on her sin, and he calls her to humble herself. And then he leaves her with this promise: "I will surely multiply your offspring, so that they cannot be numbered or multiplied." Behold. You are pregnant and you shall bear a son. Sounds an awful lot like another birth announcement in the New Testament. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord heard your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone's, and everyone's against him. And he shall dwell close to his brothers, or another way of translating that phrase is, he will dwell in hostility to his brothers. A very strange word given here. I mean, you know, humble yourself in return and your offspring will uh, will not be able to be numbered. It sounds an awful lot like he is promising her that her child is the promised seed of Abraham. And then you get this strange saying where God says, By the way, uh, your son will be like a donkey. He will be against everyone and everyone against him. Basically, he will be a stubborn man who will oppose all of his brother. This will be a fighting man. And there is some foreshadowing going on about who this child will be and we'll get the full scoop as we come to chapter 21. And if the story, if you know the story, you can tell this one is not the child of promise. Even though he will be multiplied greatly, but Hagar and Sarah don't know this. They still treat, and they will treat Ishmael as though he is the promised one for 13 years. And then Hagar and all of this speech is going on and Hagar speaks and she says, surely you are the God who sees, meaning God saw me in my distress and he came down to me and he spoke a word of promise to me at this place, at this well. So Hagar names the well in memory of what had happened here, Lahoi Ra'oi, meaning the well of the living one who sees me. She names the well, and she returns to Sarah, her mistress, submitting to her. And she gives birth to a child, a child who will indeed become great, and his offspring will be numerous. And Abraham names him Ishmael, saying, God hears, just as God commanded Hagar to have him named. Because, or at least so it seems, God heard their cry to fulfill the promise of an offspring, and did so by bringing this child into the world. All the while, God stands by silence about the whole thing. Again, God only speaks to, you'll notice, Hagar here. He says nothing more to Abraham for 13 more years. We do not hear another word from God to Abraham. He will say nothing to him concerning this child or how he should understand it. So what do we make of all of this? I mean, how do we understand what is going on here? I mean, on the one hand are the people of God who impatiently are trying to fulfill God's promises to him. Instead of waiting for God's timing, on the other hand, you have a slave girl who is treated harshly and oppressed, who runs away and is, returns humble and contrite. How do we understand what is going on here? What is the crux? What is the heart of the matter here? people of God notice in this text who it is that God intentionally blesses. It's not Abraham. It's not Sarah. It's not those who are called God's people, though these two do receive a child who seems as though he may be the promised seed. Otherwise, God stands silently in relation to them as far as they are concerned. He does not bless their actions of seeking to make God's promises come back. In fact, if anything, he curses them and they curse themselves by so doing and creating unnecessary heartache and turmoil and pain in their home life. But to Hagar, this minor character, this seemingly obscure woman, one, you know, an, an Egyptian slave girl, surely a woman of low status in the eyes of the world, God grants a blessing to the obscure, to the wanderer, to the outsider. God reaches out and he blesses this one. Why? Why her and not Abraham? People of God, it's because Hagar isn't trying to make a name for herself. She isn't trying to accomplish something by the works of her own hand. She isn't trying to bring her works together with God's work to accomplish his promise or bring about the birth of a savior as Abraham and Sarah are doing. She has no part in that. All that she has done She's been shown her own sin and her need to repent, and she has done so, and God has added blessing to her because of it. Hagar is like the woman from Samaria at the well with Jesus. In John 4, he shows up to her, and he tells her of all of her sins And he reveals then who he is to her. He turns, and she in turn turns in faith, believing he is indeed the Messiah come to deliver them. She sees a God before who, who sees her, who cares for her, who loves her, who doesn't care what works it is that she performs, who doesn't care what works she brings to the table. He doesn't care about those things. He comes to her not looking to make sure that she is good enough. He comes to her seeking to save her from her sin, seeking to bring an outsider, a wanderer, someone who doesn't belong into the very presence of God. That's how our God works. He doesn't work Uh, He comes and he delivers those who by faith rest and depend upon him alone for salvation. He doesn't bless those who raise up their hand and say, God, look how great of a person I am. Look at the good things I can do. See, look at the good works I am doing for your church. I created a child, one who will be your promised son. He doesn't bless that. He blesses the one who is humble and contrite and recognizing how low indeed she is. He is with the outcast and the outsider. Those who know they cannot add anything to the accomplished work of Christ to become more favored in God's eyes. Our works never enter into the picture when it comes to God keeping his promises And this is why Abraham and Sarah are not blessed. They seek to, in their own wisdom, add to the works of God. That's why Galatians tells us that Ishmael was born of the flesh and Isaac is born of the promise. One is conceived by works trying to add to God's promise. The other, out of faith, is dependent and dependence alone for God's salvation. People of God... Do we trust, do we know that God will accomplish all that he has set out to do? That he will not let his people flounder, that his purposes for the church are good purposes. And they are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Do we really believe that? Or are we looking for a way to make God's kingdom come now? To improve upon his plan instead of waiting patiently for him to work in his timing. To work in his way. Dear Christian, trust that God knows what he is doing with his people. He demonstrated it already once before to us. He demonstrates it to us through his son, Christ Jesus, that he will indeed accomplish salvation. He will make the church great by his own timing, in his own way. He will be faithful. And he hears the voice of the afflicted. He knows our troubles And in due season, he will answer us, but he is in no hurry. Let us not rush to do the work of our God for him. Let us allow him to work in his time and in his way through the word of God and the sacraments that he gives to the church to accomplish all that he has set out for her to do. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you, and we know that we often seek to make ourselves approved before you. We often try to bring our best works and say, here, God, you accept us now because of these good things. And Father, we pray that you would forgive us of this sin We pray that you would turn our eyes to Christ Jesus, the one who accomplished our redemption for us, the one who stands perfect in our place, the one who took our sin upon himself and gave us life. Father, we pray that you would turn our eyes to him. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us of our impatience and cause us to turn our eyes to you, waiting on you to give in your due season, to bless as you see fit. Father, we thank you and we love you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.